welcome to One of 200, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. We have the full co-host crew here this evening. Uh, Justine, Philip and Bronco are all in attendance and we're joined by special guest for the second time in less than a week, uh, Joel Walsham. Lovely to be here. Kia ora. Yeah, thanks so much for coming along to uh, talk party politics with us and, and electoralism, I guess, just more broadly. You've been a, a party volunteer previously and have been involved in one or two different parties and, and, and a bunch of electoral work. For sure. My claim to fame was, well, for a while, that I was the <laughs> second youngest ever member of the New Zealand Labour Party following Darren Hughes. Because um, I had the pleasure of getting dispensation to join the Labour Party like a true party hack at the age of 13. Wow. Um, wow. And then spent far too many years messing around with that um, before thinking that maybe the Greens would be more enjoyable and then realising <laughs> <laughs> maybe that wasn't the case either. And then trying to flirt with the Bernie Sanders campaign. It was just, there was a series of uh, unfortunate events. Yeah. I feel like... That's a very interesting trajectory to me as someone who tried to flirt with the Bernie campaign but was cock-blocked by COVID. Uh, <laughs> blocked by COVID. The greatest crime COVID ever committed. Cock-blocking really Justine. Yeah. It really was. That was my... I was meant to be there to be sad with everybody. Instead, so I was rude. just yeah. so sad. But that kind of, like, that kind of trajectory that uh, Joel was just talking about I think is, is really interesting because... I think I think most kind of actual real life leftists who are involved with party politics in any way, we're all on we're all on various spectrums in terms of compromise and and dealing with frustrations, right? Because as you said, like dealing with the Labour Party for a while, it's never the place, it's never the perfect place to be. But how much shit are you willing to put up with? Like, what structures are there that you think are generative or degenerative in that in that context? And then similarly, the Green Party. Like, I knew I knew a lot of people in Mana. Māori Party, various kind of left-wing spaces who think they can turn different parties into something that, you know, can create something for the left. And especially in an MMP environment, like in New Zealand, I think it works a bit differently from maybe like a DSA environment and a momentum environment, although that's an interesting comparison, I think. But I think it's interesting that you started from what is now considered to be more like a centrist, like centre-left party. Joel and then yeah yeah like how do you think that trajectory happened why did you go in that direction I mean like as as a as a very young person my uh like connection to the Labour Party was like purely driven by my parents were trade unionists my dad actually worked for NZNO Justine um for years and was an organizer there um and he ran for the Labour Party in 99 um so I just kind of like grew up around like unionism and like feeling um, that was my it was in my home um so that was a bit hard to escape and then as I kind of grew into my own like politicization I started realizing that the Labour Party was maybe not uh the home of workers um as much as it was like the home of a kind of like tribalism and yeah, so I think that my trajectory from Labour to Greens to outside of that um, really occurred just because of my own my own like realization of of what my politics were outside of the brands and like more connected to you know 
my values. Was there like a big difference between the, the party culture of, of Labour compared to the Greens, at least at the time that you were there? Yeah, I found, well, the Labour Party had been just such a toxic environment. Uh, the, the years that I left um, were kind of like the Cunliffe, once the Cunliffe years started, that was like the, the end of my, um, my time there. Uh, so from, I mean, particularly the 2008 election through the 2014 election, it was like just a blimmin' toxic place. Really the like fragmentation that happened in the caucus after, you know, this void was created um, with, of course, Helen Clark not being there and this like very central organizing power of the prime minister's office did not exist. Going to the Greens felt really lovely after that. Going to a, a place that did not have something at the time that was like as central as the leader's office um, and kind of what that stood for in the Labour Party. Um, I found a like... I was also in West Auckland. Um, and so the relationship between the Greens and Labour in West Auckland was like, it was kind of strange. There was some cooperation, but also uh, I remember in organising uh, around local body elections, there was the, um, we all have to agree thing that the Greens have. Um, consensus. Consensus decision-making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The consensus decision-making. There we go. Uh. Um, <laughs> this thing, this term that made not a lot of sense in political meetings was then a tool that was used to kind of uh, stifle um, mm. a lot of discussion. And so I remember immediately when I became involved with the Greens, while I was still in New Zealand, um, that was a big issue. And then afterwards, I was outside of the country. And so I was organizing kind of a lot on my own and online um, with other New Zealanders who were, you know, the Kiwi Greens abroad or, you know, what ever the iteration was at that time, that was a lot more freeing. Um, but I found that being in Green Party meetings was quite uh, uh, stifling. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what what era, so you said the Cunliffe era was like your last involvement with Labour, right? So what year yeah. did you get involved with the Greens? Uh, I what, think it was... Oh, it was before the 2014 election. So it was probably like okay. the, around the end of 2013 yeah. through until I resigned after 2017 when the Greens handed their uh, extra oh, questions wow. to, yeah, yeah. to National. Um, yeah. It was just, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, yeah, it seemed absolutely people. unbelievable. Yeah, I, it was, it was unbelievable. A few people, a few good people resigned at that point. That's very fair. Yeah. yeah, but like, so that I think is a good um, introduction to the idea of like how much shit are people willing to put up with, right? Because everyone's willing to put up with a certain amount of shit to be involved in a party that doesn't 100% align with their beliefs. Like no one who's involved with specifically electoral politics, but even movement politics, like there's never a movement that represents all of your beliefs perfectly, right? We're all compromising to some degree. And I just think it's an interesting... Um, not even thought experiment, it's a real life experiment to go through kind of what's your line because I think a concerning number of activists and leftists don't really do that. 
And then we come up with these challenges, these things that come up in real life seem like things that we've just never confronted before. It's like, it's this bizarre kind of upside down kind of world where we go, oh, I never expected this, this group that I knew I wasn't entirely aligned with to do things that I didn't like. And then we suddenly freak out and go, oh no, this doesn't represent me. And sometimes like, I think that's that example that you said is a good like final, final straw to be like, no, this represents something about an organization that I'm in that I'm fundamentally opposed to and shows that they don't really understand power or however you want to frame it, which I would say, like, I completely agree with. That's a good, that's a good reason to throw in the towel, but there'll be, there are some things that people I think see as like a bridge too far that don't seem strategic to me. Like fundamentally, I think it's a question of like power and strategy, like which of these things are actual good reasons to be, involved with organizations or not involved with organizations on the other side of the coin and which ones aren't right. There's this like ongoing kind of ongoing struggle because there are factions in all these groups, right? If you're in labor for a long period of time, you know that like a lot of people in the labor party barely get on with each other. Like I don't even need to be in labor. Don't even to, speak to, to each other. Right. I, so I can see that from here. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you hate some of the people that are in the same group as you, but there's still like a strategic benefit to being in the same electoral arrangement with them. And in the same way, like in an FPP environment, I think it's interesting that like the Labour Party in Britain say, or even to some degree, the Labour Party in Australia, but in a different way, obviously. And then the Democrats in the US seem much more tolerant of the idea of being in what in New Zealand we would refer to as like unacceptable close quarters with these people. It's this kind of like social cancel culture that's like, well, how dare you communicate to me in a way that I find unacceptable, right? I, mean, I, th- I think that you're talking about um, two interesting, like, phenomenons, right? And I think two um, ways that the left kind of uh, organises itself or, or um, congregates. So, you know, like, one is the left as, like, a lifestyle choice, so, like, a moral kind of position, you know? Um, and that's within certainly like activist subculture. And that's why, you know, that's why I would call it like a subculture because it's about a way of living your life. Whereas um, I think we are all sort of evincing like um, an organizing structure, which is like a strategic analysis of like, where is my time best spent to achieve these political goals? And I think that's two quite different things that are often like kind of, you know, collapse onto one another. Um, you know, and you definitely see that. I like, and I, and I don't blame petty leftists for thinking like this because when you have you know if you don't have any like experience collective experience of being in organizations and organizing you you don't know how to deal with these sort of dilemmas right because you just um and especially when your politics is tied up in you know your morals or your ethics or whatever like i think um i think it's kind of a natural reaction if you don't have any kind of strategic kind of thinking um, so I think it speaks to a certain weakness, I would say, within like the New Zealand left that 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 is so prominent. Um, and that's not to say that we can never leave organisations. Hell, I leave organisations all the time. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Not all the time, but sometimes you just have to do the math. But uh, yeah, so so I think it's um, I think it's certainly an interesting um, idea to. I mean, I think like a good example of, of I don't know, this might be a bit controversial, but like. Um, you know, the disestablishment of the Auckland school strike for climate was a really good example of this. I mean, like, there's just no, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, the whole conversation around it was incredibly, I think, destructive, actually. I don't, I don't care if that 
I don't know, if someone can cancel me for saying that, I don't care. Um, having 30-year-olds talk about why high schoolers shouldn't be politically active because they're problematic is a slightly destructive thing, I would say. I think say. you only need to look at the outcomes, right, to say it was destructive. Um, yeah. Whether or not... That was the intention. Uh, that was the intention, yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's just anything like cancelable about stating a something that happened. Um, I, I think yeah, we're all... Point pretty much in agreement with you i would say unless anyone has any uh dangerous contrarian takes that were <laughs> i will cancel you yeah right well i mean like i mean in that case i mean you're talking about but the the whole thing was uh the, the they felt the focus was not enough on uh how climate change was uh disproportionately going to affect um communities of color so you know maori and pacifica communities in particular um, but of course, the, the the best way to actually achieve that is not to make your movement smaller, by well, and in this case, non-existent by just disbanding it. But it's actually to <laughs> try and fight harder. And if anything, just you know, I mean, put those people in, in leadership positions. You know, try Absolutely. and recruit people from those communities to to join. Make your movement bigger. Um, you're not going to be able to save anyone by deciding to uh, go home and 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 you know uh, shut the door and, and play video games. I mean. It just confuses me because you kind of need a mass movement of millions to affect change. So you can't really be telling people to go home and not do anything. Maybe maybe you can speak to this, Joel, but like I think potentially as uh, younger people involved in this as well, it, it does become overwhelming when you're in this really, um, when it's put on your shoulders in this way, right? Uh, and when... Or, or if you believe the premise of the entire organization is totally against your belief system and you haven't had experience with organizing at a, at a structural level before, it makes it a lot harder to undertake uh, you know, any transition to a, a more useful organization rather than just wrap it up. For sure. And you, you burn through like kind of generational knowledge it never builds up how to you, you the organization itself never learns how to become a better organization of the the people within the organization never learn how to become better organizers um when you were just wearing through people endlessly um a little bit i think if you look at what's happening in momentum even in DSA, um, when I feel like when these organizations lose a sense of uh, hope or when they lose a, a like a clear uh, mark of what might be progress or success, it's quite easy then for it to all start falling apart. You lose the things that are going to, you know, unite you, uh, towards some greater purpose. Yeah. After sure. I, like the, the 2016 Bernie campaign, um, I remember this had been a very strange moment in, in my like kind of organizing experience because I had been first involved a little bit with DSA in the Bay Area. And at that time, my impression of DSA was, it was not tied to the Democratic Party. Um, then there was this, uh, you know, the Bernie campaign and in the area that I was in, there was this like very unheard of coalition between people that were uh, Green Party members in 
like the North Bay in San Francisco and who were joining hands with people that were vaguely on the left of the Democrats and, and so on and so forth. There was a huge effort for like eight months. And then after that, the, the disintegration that happened was not just the Bernie campaign. The disintegration that happened was the activists themselves, the organizers themselves, stopped being involved in anything beyond that because it fell back into this whole cycle of like fragmentation and, and exhaustion. I think that's like too familiar to people on the left. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that kind of, yeah, like predictable burnout and almost like, you know, small C conservative, like parochialism, I think is a very natural reaction to that top down um, campaign strategy, which like a lot of people had predicted, including like a vast, probably I would say majority of people that I read talking about DSA. And the only, the only reason that there was such unity behind Bernie Sanders is that felt like a real opportunity, right? There was like a cleavage that wasn't supposed to happen. It was too early, but it was, don't want to, I'm always the Leninist kind of person, but I, I don't want to do another Leninist moment, but I feel like uh, when the moment comes, you have to seize it, right? So it was there. And you, when the time is, when the time is there, you have to, you either go or you don't. Right. And it felt like that kind of moment where they were like, well, look, it's either now or, or never, it's not going to happen for another decade. So we may as well just throw everything at it. But that's, that's the risk that you take when that's the strategy that you go with. So if you don't have an accidental natural leader, like a Corbyn or a Sanders, then like that necessitates a different form of um, accumulation of forces, I think. So like in New Zealand or Australia, say, or obviously Germany is like a slightly different example, but I think it works in a similar context. Like we have, we have parties that can be considered leftist parties in certain ways and not in other ways. And how do we, how do we formulate that as people who are both on the left and interested in parliamentary electoral politics? Because every currently existing parliamentary party has its failings, right? but also some of them have benefits and some of them have different benefits. And, you know, there are different thresholds. Obviously the national party probably isn't worth doing entryism in, right? Because of the way that it's constituted. Yeah, unless you're um, a transphobe. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 true. But still somehow of the left, but uh, party-less as those people always are, right? <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean they don't have any friends? I think that's what that means. It's code. It's code for Party-less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like that level of centralization of power, there's there's no way to do a base up membership based creation of of power within that structure. And in the Labour the Labour Party now seems like it's centralized party party power a lot more than it had 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I'm not sure, Joel, you'd probably know better than me. But it seems like over time they've really compacted that power base. Like there's what, five people in control of the Labour Party now? Yeah, to me, this is one of the most bizarre things about the situation that happened before the 2017 election, because there had been, I think for a while, the bulk of organising that was happening on the left of the Labour Party was about having a one member, one vote kind of situation for the party leader. They abandoned that with... <laughs> with how uh, Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson and um, all of the people on the Labour right uh, then swooped in and took over 
um, power. There had been moves for, you know, kind of an open primary-ish uh, situation. Um, I, I think that there had been just a, a huge um, consolidation of power under Helen Clark. It was how she managed to be so electorally successful for over a decade. Um, well, she was electorally successful for less than a decade, but um, her, her grip on power and the, the leader's office grip on power um, was unquestioned within the organization itself, within the structures um, of the party itself. And so, I, I mean, it just absolutely baffles me that we have never once in like mainstream media talked about the fact that without any vote of the Labour Party members, and Labour Party members all accepted it, it was, you know, the kind of almost Naomi Klein uh, shock doctrine moment of, wait, this is all going so bad, we're going to lose the election so terribly bad that we will abandon everything that we've spent the last nine years fighting over. Yeah, that was just very strange. But I mean, you see it now within the National Party, you see the very same thing with the, the void of opposition um, I think starting to get in their heads. For a, yeah, I think those points around the National Party and seeing it happen there says a lot about both party structures, right? And probably about a lot of electoral party structures, especially those that were built under a first-past-the-post system where it wasn't only the illusion of strong leadership, the structures themselves necessitated it if you're going to be successful as a, a political agent uh, within the party itself, you had to make use of those mechanisms, uh, or you do have to make use of those mechanisms to ensure that you present to the electorate a sense of stability. And, you know, the media understands this as well, as it is more commonly than not the major storyline or, or narrative that they used to describe a party's uh, fortunes when, when they're in opposition, is how stable they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as someone who wants to be prime minister or, you know, in that kind of leadership role within most of these parties, you have to be willing to stamp out dissent. Uh, and it's exactly what we're seeing happen with Collins now, as you say. And I'm, you know, you and I have had this conversation a, a few times, Philip, around... Um, where where can things like entryism work? And I think for the Labour Party, this is one of the major places or, or reasons why it's incredibly difficult to do entryism in, in that party. I mean, yeah, you, you bring up the, the media's treatment of opposition, and I know this is something we've talked about a few times, but like I think it's so uh, it's so clear, especially in the last couple of weeks, there was Collins's treatment of Mueller, right? When Mueller admitted to speaking to a journalist, and he said that he didn't think it was a he thought it was off the record or whatever, as what four other MPs, three other MPs, four including him, criticized Harete Pango for you know being a shit MP essentially when she came back and. In, a, in some meeting, she had obviously heard someone say that it was him and took the, took the chance to really, like, just attack him and say that he had to leave the party and stuff. And journalists, instead of going, oh, uh, party leader attacks an MP for uh, admitting speaking to a journalist, really took the opportunity to go, 
oh, this this person leaked, which I mean that's not true. That's not what a le- that's not what leak means. That's not what the word leak means in in the context of politics. But apart from that, you know, the level of editorialism that it takes for mainstream gallery journalists to be like, oh yeah, this this person who we always hated. I, I'll never understand this. I've said this probably twenty times on this podcast. But the level of t- the level of fucking vitriol that Todd Muller gets from gallery journalism, I just I'll never I'll never understand it. He's much less objectionable than all their best friends that they go to dinner with every every night. It's not an ideological thing. He I don't know what he did, but maybe his husband murdered someone. I don't know. I don't know what it is. There's some connection. He has some fucking maga hat, mate. There's some there's something that will come out well, in now, ten years. They... I'm so convinced. Now they like him because now they now it's like there's this wave of sympathy. No, no, no. Remember, they also liked him after he had a mental breakdown because then exactly they, they weren't allowed to <laughs> say like, anything about it. <laughs> he so bravely opened when up. When he has the nothing, mental breakdown we helped to cause uh, by. <laughs> but then, then they'll publish. You know, then they'll go. Oh, it's so it's such a tough job. It's such a shame that this is the way that politics operates. You're making it operate this way. You, you're so, in control of the power so, dynamics of politics. It's kind of like a like a mob, uh, like a, like a mob boss or like a thug or something. The know, gallery fucking like, revels in it. They're as like, well, oh, like it's so such a shame. What happened to your thumbs? Um, <laughs> you, you, you really uh, you could play the piano last week, and now uh, how that happened? You trip over or something? That's such a shame. A shame. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't want that. Wouldn't you want, want it to get out. worse, you would going? you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, oh, sorry, Justin. Go. Oh no, I was just saying. I, I don't know how much this stuff compares to how it used to be because you know um all this palace intrigue is incredibly unappealing i think for the um the regular kind of person who maybe cares about things but doesn't care about you know the the latest kind of gossip right in the halls of power but it definitely like has some really disturbing anti you know democratic implications right it's it, it like it fundamentally is about hollowing out democracy internally within parties but then also you know in terms of the press's relationship uh, to the parties and their supposed like responsibility to kind of keep them all honest or whatever the fourth estate. So yes, profoundly disturbing. I'm just wondering if it has always been like that. Yeah, I think I think it's been like that for quite a while. Since since you know Parliament's in Wellington and that's where the press pack is and they all like associate with each other and all the PR organizations are there as well and it's just this big horrible cesspit. I think one of the the clearest indications of this of the stability narrative and the, and the need to seize power within these parties being so uh, necessary is the treatment by the media of Muller, as, as you're saying, Philip, um, around leaks, uh, as opposed to the treatment of Collins around leaks. You know, stuff has leaked or, or, or not under Collins. Um, you've got this, you've got a whole bunch of ex-party officials just um, this week gone, uh, her ex Chief uh, Press Sec came out and just slammed the party and Collins personally. But you're not seeing that same level of, I guess, blood in the water as you did under Muller. Like it was, it just went under Muller. The, you could tell the press gallery could sniff it out, eh? But Collins, yeah, yeah. Who, as you say, Justine, is being far more kind of anti democratic in a lot of ways, um, as is the reporting on her, um, is. Even though her her personal ratings and the party ratings are so terrible, because she's managed to last, um, and because she takes a really hard line, that that strength is um, mirrored by the media. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think the um, a large part of that is that gallery journalism in particular, journalism in general in New Zealand under a you know stripped down neoliberal commercialized model of uh, clickbait, incentivized kind of journalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in particular, gallery journalism, I think is the peak example of this, is that they don't give a shit about democracy and definitely not party democracy. They care much more about power and access, right? So it doesn't it doesn't matter how the leaders of these parties actually treat their MPs, their staff, the members of their party definitely are at the bottom of that list. These people don't give a shit. These these journalists are never going to meet, you know, caring, empathetic party activists who don't live in Wellington, which are the vast majority of people actually involved in politics in the country, if that's what you consider to be involved in politics, right? Some old lady living in Christchurch who knocks on 4,000 doors every election, that person is more invested in politics than some party hack who works for one party. And some and party as, leaders. As soon as they're offered $5,000 more for a different party, will swap parties and work for a party with an entirely different ethos. Like, that's... Is that politics or is that just a job? Like, that's essentially being a public servant, right? There's a fine line between these things. Because ideology doesn't exist in the fucking New Zealand psyche of politics. A really good example of this is the way that Greens closed AGMs have been treated over the last, you know, three decades. You know, important for party democracy to function effectively, especially under a consensus model, um, so that people can speak openly and freely without having this narrative that, you know, the caucus is in... um, disagreement or or disarray or there's so much internal strife in the Green Party and almost every election cycle you'll get this this utterly whinging like trite full of tropes piece by one or more gallery journalists talking about how it's so anti-democratic that they don't get access to this that they're not able to come and watch the whole thing um, that it's behind closed doors at all and Often it'll be accompanied by, oh, what are they doing behind those doors? Probably Morris dancing or some shit like that. And, and you wonder why that, like, parties don't have these conversations in public. Um, I wanted to ask Joel uh, a couple of questions, uh, I guess, based on some of what we've been talking about. It's like, one, what is the prospect for uh, doing the kind of, of, of entryist project that, that, you know, Momentum tried to do in the UK and then obviously the DSA is trying to, uh, do with mixed success in the US with the Democratic Party, and I guess the second part of that question is: is uh, what, are, what are the prospects for for doing you know for for trying to build power um, in New Zealand? Given that you know, unlike the UK and the US, we have uh, our local governments tend to be pretty weak, and it doesn't seem to be maybe quite the same opportunities you know in in, in parts of the government beyond the, the central government to really try and build our power. Or maybe, maybe that perception is wrong. I don't know, but it seems like, like it is, you know, you, you're not necessarily going to get a Bernie Sanders type person in New Zealand being the mayor of, you know, Auckland or, or even a smaller city um, and, and building up from there. So I, I, get, I want to get your thoughts um, on, on, on those two questions. Both interesting. And I think, I mean, obviously related, because I think that the kind of consolidation of power at the top of the party is not just happening in opposition. Um, we saw it with the deselection of Lewisa Wall, actually. The the Labour Party head office, I think, now is consolidating its power more than it 
attempt to during the chaotic years of the opposition. Really, the at a local level, there is endless uh, tensions over controls of LECs, the Labour Electorate Committees. And for a candidate to be selected uh, as a Labour Party candidate, they have to win over part of the LEC, but the LEC is not the most important uh, thing. They also have to have a uh, the support of the head office. Without the support of the head office, it is virtually impossible to be selected um, as a candidate. This is one of the things that is part of my interest in um, like the, the drama of party politics um, was my, my dad uh, running for the selection of the uh, Rangitike electorate in 1999, um, ran kind of a huge union-based campaign in which he was not supported at all by the head office um, and ran with the support entirely of unions and then was uh, for all intents and purposes, shat on by the Labour Party uh, throughout the campaign, who had this idea that uh, they could not, they did not want to win an electorate if it meant that uh, he, with this union-backed campaign, would become the MP. They would far rather have somebody off the list. Um, and so they just withdrew support from the electorate campaign. So I think on that level, it then gets very, very difficult uh, to overcome it because let's say you are, um, you manage to, to beat the head office and get selected. Then you manage to run a, a decently good campaign at a local level. Um, the head office is controlling your access to media, your access to, uh, you know, other MPs or coming and lending your your campaign some degree of, um, I guess, more visibility. So that really, really traps any ability for, uh, like, leftist organising um, within that party uh, specifically. Um, and then I think we also maybe underestimate how much at least the Labour Party, or, I mean, all of our political parties that are in parliament are also social clubs. Um, they are also like, you want to run around behind Jacinda Ardern when she's just been elected in 2008 because Jacinda's a hot new MP and you want to be associated with that for the same reason that you want somebody to like your tweet or the same kind of like social elements um, that are at play. And so my perspective is that it's even worse at the local government level. I think the question was about uh, kind of the potential for like entryism and maybe like local government perhaps being more of a possibility. I, yeah, I think that we need to look at, at how much these parties are also functioning as social clubs. Um, because although it sounds nice to say that lots of our parties are filled with people who are just genuinely uh, interested in you know, their values or um, their morals or their uh, so on and so forth, um, power is just attractive to people. And I think that a lot of people, particularly in the Labour Party, particularly um, in youth wings of the Labour Party, are attracted to like the, the optics of being 
in close relation to power. And when we have a endless, um, I guess, quest for modernization, the youth wings then become very powerful parts of the party. And also they're, of course, so open to manipulation. And I remember there was this trend within the Labour Party um, around 2010 to kind of set up various youth branches um, because youth branches, then if you set up more youth branches, then you got more votes in the LEC and so on and so forth. And as we are constantly wanting to, to be young and new and new and young and modern, kind of how many young people you can get showing up with you at an event becomes this strange metric of, of power. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't personally have uh, much hope that, say, within the Labour Party, given how it's structured with um, its branches, its LECs, and the control of head office, that there is much hope um, at this point. I would love there to be, because the Labour Party brand amongst, you know, certain parts of the community, amongst, you know, some working people has such a a tribal following um and it would be great if some of that could be used for uh, actual uh, leftism but i don't have much hope yeah no i mean I've, this is basically what i've heard from uh a fair number <laughs> of people who've been involved to various degrees in the labor party for a decade um, and is basically why I got involved with the Greens also about a decade ago, because uh, what I saw as a young person was more of this kind of um, tribal kind of social club element than any interest in politics or, God forbid, policy or, you know, anything to actually improve the welfare of the worst off, anything that these days you'd describe as kind of left wing which doesn't mean that the greens are perfect and they never were but when when the comparison was like you know you'd meet uh eight people tagging along behind an mp and say so why are you doing this and they couldn't answer you like it's a very unappealing way for people to get involved in politics i think like unfortunately the kind of the kind of people you can drag along to a quote-unquote political event in that in that world are always going to be the same kind of people so even if you get a decent number of young lab hacks along to an event, the problem is those people would have been involved to the same extent anyway, right? These, these are people who seek out these, these kind of, I don't know, bizarre kind of anodyne. Uh, these are probably Unimun freaks, right? Yes, they are. <laughs> as some, as someone Which who... I'm, I'm allowed to say that as a, no. as a Unimunner. Un... Oh, Philip. My my comrade. Um, It's funny because I feel like um, I've had very similar trajectories to almost everyone. Maybe I'm just because I'm I'm promiscuous with my time. (laughs) I don't know. But, you know, it's like I I, I did model UN. I was in in Young Labour. I don't know how we didn't cross... paths Joel at the time um I wasn't nearly you you sound like you were actually scheming and trying to do things I was just confused because I thought Labour was socialist so it was just like a couple of years of just slowly learning that they weren't um which was an interesting experience and then you know went off to the greens um but I think like this you know the the young Labour to MP pipeline has produced some of the worst <laughs> MPs 
you know, like um, as much as I rag on the Labour Party writ large, I mean, like you gotta, you gotta, like you know, if, if we're going by degrees of bad, I would say that Andrew Little, as a former union person who came up through, you know, the this sort of union to Labour pipeline, which is a disappearing pipeline, is you know by a big margin better than someone like um, Jacinda Ardern or Grant Robertson, who are basically yeah that young Labour to MP kind of pipeline. The only work experience Grant Robertson had prior to you know becoming an MP was he worked for MFAT as a diplomat, um, and he was in Young Labour. That's it. That's his entire like. That's he has no experience and just nothing. He's just. Can you just imagine how? I mean, I'm not like trying to be like his lived experience, but how narrow your perception of things are if that's like you know if you've only been like a hack and a diplomat <laughs> like you know um i just well, kind of results in in mps like chris hipkins who is a labor mp then managed to come out in industrial disputes and run the lines of employers why because they've never been working people um it it produces exactly what you're saying these mps like Grant Robertson, Jacinda Ardern, Chris Hipkins, um, they're, they're reproducing the exact same model of Annette King and Trevor Mallard and, and that generation. Um, it's all, it's recycled, it's the same. I think this um, kind of professionalization of politics as well is exactly why you see in the National Party too at the moment, everyone just falling into line behind Collins because they feel like it's their only shot is to kind of be loyal now to take their chance later. They don't see, there's nothing in their universe that allows them to do otherwise uh, because they're so indoctrinated with the way this is meant to work. Well, it's also people coming from backgrounds where they're basically just, they're, they're bureaucrats um, and they move on from, from one bureaucratic position to uh, what they perceive as being another one um, with the hope that eventually they will, they will, ascend to the highest bureaucratic position you can possibly be which is you know prime minister maybe you'll get finance minister maybe you get something else but that that's i think what these roles are viewed as it's it's you get to be the functionary at the top of all the other functionaries um and and you don't necessarily have any political goals i mean you know the, the there was that interview with uh todd miller that uh ben thomas um uh, <laughs> i know everyone on the show loves uh, uh uh singled out recently friend of the um, cast ben thomas yeah that's right huge fan um yeah well but anyway he he uh recently um uh pointed out that interview that that miller did uh you know whatever it was some months ago where he kind of picked over the the, the carcass of his his failed leadership and he kind of said, well, yeah, well, you know, I didn't actually have any real plan. I didn't really take the time to think about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve, what my political goals were. And it's like, dude, you were the, you, you, you stood up, like no one pushed you into doing this. I mean, you, you, you wanted to be the leader of the National Party with a view of becoming prime minister, you know, the, the, the head of the country. And you have no idea what you want to do. Um, I mean, that's, that's insane. And yet, uh, it, it, it fits because I think that's, you, you can even go outside New Zealand, look at uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, where famously Clinton had to have a committee of people to come up with a rationale for her to run. Because, that's good. That's a good memory, Bronco. Thank you. For <laughs> well, I mean, that's such a telling thing because the rationale, of course, was she wanted to be president. Because if you spent your entire life chasing 
uh, a resume, if you spent your entire life just wanting to get sort of titles and, and, and fancy things that you can attach to your name, uh, being the, the, the President of the United States or really any world leader, that is the most fancy qualification that you could possibly ever get. Um, and, and so that, but you don't, you can't say that you can't be like, well, elect me president because I want to be president. Um, but that's, that's ultimately, I think with a lot of, uh, people that, that, um, at least get into politics through the, the route that you're describing, uh, or that we've been describing here, um, end up doing, you know, they just, they just want to have that one more notch, um, you know, on, on the old uh, proverbial bedpost, I guess, you know, uh, sadly. Do you think it yeah, has to be this way, though? Do you, like, we we're talking about, oh, you know, they moved from bureaucratic to bureaucratic role, they've never been a working person or whatever, all their experiences is in political roles. But mm. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, if people are, like, experts in governance because they've only done governance roles, and organizing roles or, or whatever, that would be amazing. It's just that the current structures of their parties are not that. Mm. That's the, that seems to me to be the main issue. Well, the question, I guess, would follow from that is, uh, Joel, uh, is, the, is the answer a, a brand new party? Like if if Labour is beyond kind of saving and, and, and you know, uh, taking over, and that's just a dead end, uh, is, is it time to look for a new party or, you know, a party that's not, not the Greens, not anything that's out there? Uh, and if so, um, or if not, what, what else is there? What other options are there uh, to affect the kind of change that, that I think a lot of people want to see? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I, would, I would say, <laughs> I mean, I think relating a little bit to the, um, the other question from Kyle, um, there has to be an the if this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? And there's then the party structure itself. The party structure has to be accountable to something. This is, I guess, coming back to um, something I said a little bit earlier, the thing that was to me so disappointing about the manner in which uh, Jacinda Ardern became leader of the Labour Party and the right, uh, so to speak, of the Labour Party gained their power um, was they overruled or, or overrode the, the mechanisms that were supposed to hold them accountable. They, they were not, nobody was supposed to become leader of the Labour Party anymore because of what happened in the caucus room. So I think that the Labour Party potentially, I mean, the brand of the Labour Party is no doubt damaged amongst working people, in my opinion, but the brand is clearly strong enough that they are able to win a majority uh, within the MMP environment and the the people within the party well the the politicians and those in caucus need to be accountable to the members so it needs to there needs to be some sort of seize the moment thing because potentially i i mean i could imagine that if there was a kind of Bernie Sanders momentum-esque moment or, or campaign and organizing that was able to select some MPs, but was able to actually sign up members. The, the Labour Party is not, it's not a mass membership party. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's the key problem. 
if there was a concerted effort on the left to make the Labour Party a, a mass membership party and to organise those new members, yes, maybe there are just enough levers of democracy that could be pulled um, in favour of the members, but it's going to be a battle to change some of those things. Okay, I, Joel, I, Joel here's, a, here's a question that I think is a... Um, was a provocation that I was given recently as someone who's been involved with the Greens for coming on a decade, I guess. How many people do you think it would take dedicated leftist organizers with a similar theory of power to you, people who are willing to kind of show up to meetings, do the, do the mahi, um, shake hands and also swallow shit and dead rats when it's required to turn the Labour Party around? off the top like uh, i would say that you would probably need anywhere between 75 maybe 75 members per electorate so it's not really that many per electorate really i think per electorate with 75 members i think that you could mess with the branch structure enough and the lec structure to change things i mean i think anything over 75 you're you could be in quite a strong position. The Labour Party, while they might have an okay amount of members on paper, there's really not a huge amount of you know dedicated core yeah. Labour Party people, and they are aging. The Labour Party lost its its mass membership, you know, in the eighties. Um, since then, it's <laughs> there's a whole lot of old people. There's a whole lot of people that are continuing going to the social club that they like to eat bacon egg pie and have lamingtons to go out and knock on some doors yeah um, yeah it's not it's not exactly an insurmountable right. challenge yeah. um but you have to be prepared um for these people to cut you um and for them to play politics dirty because it's not just the national party who does dirty politics you just need i would say my caveat would be you would need 75 <laughs> activists per electorate who would be prepared to overcome that kind of um, social element and the potential for people to be really nasty about their social life um, or, or these kinds of elements. Yeah. This is so interesting to me because I guess um, we spend a lot of time kind of trying to game out all these um, paths that you can you know potentially take and i get like probably not so much on the podcast more for podcast right um and i think i think like um this is these exactly the kind of conversations that people who are serious about building uh working class power in you know Aotearoa should be having and should be gaming it out and i you know i i can't pretend to know the right you know strategic kind of pathway um from my point of view it sounds you know 75 uh, core activist per electorate is is huge in a small country. I mean, I mean, it's not impossible, but it is it's a huge undertaking. Mike, the kind of thing that I wonder is whether you know, like it seems like New Zealand's political parties are a lot less internally um, democratic um, than parties uh, where you have these enormous kind of umbrella parties. I mean, could you even call the Democratic Party a party? It's just kind of like a weird assortment of people who aren't um, 
Republicans, right, from every political kind of ideology or, or not ideology. Um, so it seems to me like like because of, that's kind of one of the drawbacks of MMP, whereas you have a very centralised kind of uh, narrow kind of party. But then the, the sort of pro of that is that, of course, you know, there's a more of an ability to, to go outside the party and create new organisations. So I think like that's the sort of difference there. Is, would, you, would you agree with me? Well, I would say the yeah, there there are multiple benefits of MMP. I think when it comes to these kind of strategic discussions, I totally agree. In terms of like these are the discussions people should be having every day. It's weird that these aren't the discussions that people are having every day in the uh, electoral sphere, but they're really not. Like no one talks this openly about what it would actually take to change the trajectory of politics in New Zealand, but no one does it. Yeah, so I think the benefits of MMP when it comes to this is one, the thresholds are lower, right? You don't need to build the kind of momentum behind a single candidate that you do to get like a once in a lifetime Corbyn or Sanders established enough to run their, you know, initially quixotic campaign. Yeah, that all you need is a Colin or a Gareth Morgan, right? Well, yeah, you can throw millions of dollars at something. But even in those cases, they didn't hit 5%, right? <laughs> they so, suck. Yeah. So, but the threshold is, is much, much lower in terms of uh, electorally the potential ability to do those things. So you just need like a viable strategy to hit that. Like 5% is, is hard in New Zealand, but it, it means that you need some kind of broad-based strategy to do that. Or you need to be talking about exactly what we're talking about. How many people would you actually need and what level of dedication would they need to commit, to invest themselves in a currently existing political party in a way to make a difference? If you want to do electoral politics, that's another thing is you don't have to do electoral politics. I think a lot of people who think they want to do electoral politics just want to have friends and be involved in politics, which is fine. You can, um, I don't know, join a, join a social club. It's fine. You don't, you don't have to be involved in a political party, right? So, Joel, let me ask you a second question to that because I think uh, you've answered the Labour Party question, but what's your take on the Green Party? Do you think the Green Party could be a viable vehicle for left politics? Well, it sort of is the left party we have but could it be you know i mean yeah i I thought that honestly the green left network and well that's a really fascinating case study and the kind of like attempt of a character assassination that happened on some people by members of and by office holders within the greens um when there was the attempt by the green left network to organize um with the list rankings I mean, the, the structure of the Greens with the members voting on the list, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity. I think that there are, maybe within the Greens, there's like more cultural challenges. But again, I'm not entirely sure because it's been a minute since I've actually sat in a room with anybody. Um, maybe, maybe Philip, I'll pass you the mic. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have been involved with the Greens for, like a decade at ver- in various um, capacities, including the Green Left Network. Out of I feel like I should disclose that. That's not that shouldn't be a secretive thing. But yeah, it's it. There are different issues. I think so. Like when I asked before, how many people do you think it would take to change um, the Labour Party sufficiently to have you know control of the levers of power? I think it would take less than 100 people in the Green Party who were dedicated to show up to meetings, organise, um, talk nationwide. I think 
uh, 80 to 100 people could change the entire party if they, you know, communicated, were effective um, and were committed. You could basically achieve whatever you want, which is, you could say it's anti-democratic, but um, at the same time, it's because in a way the barrier to entry is so low within the Green Party that once you start pushing on fairly finely balanced levers within the party, that is easier to change. It's just that there are a lot of levers that are at 49%, 51%, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and it's not anti-democratic if it's actually some of these things are what the membership wants and hasn't been able to get out of their party leaders, right? Yeah, and the the, dif- the difference, like, I agree with what Joel said before, that one of the frustrations is the um, pretending that everyone has to agree thing, but once you see it for what it is, which is how uh, the actual people in charge of the Green Party these days see it, is that the threshold to win a vote is 75% instead of 51%. It's really not that big a difference, you know? You just have to get a few more people to show up to meetings, and the meetings are much smaller. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, a different, it's a different game of power, but it still is essentially the same challenge that it is in a Labour Party meeting. You just have to stack the meetings slightly better. I think one of the other issues... Um, and yeah, we're probably coming up to time um, because I want to try and catch the uh, people uh, against prisons Aotearoa episode on Te Amoana tonight is this hollowing out of the civic environment here in New Zealand um, that probably isn't comparable in the same way to the you know the UK or the states, which are the other two major political environments we've talked about, because of the way that the Labour Party integrated the unions and then kind of spat them out. Um, but also in this, these missing political generations, which I've talked about previously, where people either burnt out through this process and then just tapped out of the political process altogether, uh, or just had no way to engage because that professionalisation of politics alongside the lack of strong unions, alongside the lack of um, a strong NGO environment, means that it's a lot harder to get people on the ground um, than it is in places like the States or the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And it is part of the zeitgeist as well. As a young, when I joined the Young Greens, for example, 10 years ago-ish, um, the people who I was inspired by were all people in their 60s. There was no one in their 40s or 50s who was really had some kind of uh, vision for the country or any kind of uh, roadmap for how to get there. It was all people who were close to retirement age who actually had something interesting to say, right? You know, I I think uh, I just want to recommend a book to anybody who is interested in sort of the hollowing out of our parties, because I think it's a very interesting transformation. I think it says a lot about, uh, yeah, the sort of hollowness of democracy under neoliberalism, but also what we need to do to kind of fix this, right? Um, and uh, you know, Victoria University Press um, published a book, just it's a history of the Labour Party. It's called Labour, New Zealand Labour Party, 1916 to 2016. Um, it's by uh, Peter Franks and Jim McAloon. And I read it for my master's thesis, but it really um, quite nicely tells the story of the Labour Party, but also specifically that transformation from that mass party um, 
where working people and unions were sort of embedded and uh, central and there was very vibrant internal party democracy to what we have now which is basically a cadre of professional politicians who call the shots and i guess it's kind of culminated um in this really like overt kind of takeover of power by Jacinda Ardern in, in 2017 without any pushback as well from the press um which I think it didn't even register with people that that was kind of like anti-democratic you know and I think that that speaks to the kind of uh, the undemocratic the hollow hollowing out of civic society so yeah if you're interested in that it, it's a good book and it definitely paints that picture and I think it's very you know, I think you can look at um, national and um, other parties as well and draw a very, very similar conclusions. They've gone through similar things. You know, a national party did also used to be a mass party. I mean, they weren't a mass party of people I'd like to hang out with, but they certainly were a mass party. Uh, at times had more party members than um, the Labour Party. So, yeah, interesting history all around. Joel, do you want to throw in your, your final two cents before we wrap up for the evening? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I could whittle it down to two cents, but <laughs> I think that there, there is potential. There is potential for something to happen um, within the Greens. And at least, look, I, I have this thing about the tattoos that I have on my body and some of them are questionable choices, but I can look at them and say, look, at one point, I thought that I wanted it and I was committed to wanting it. I think the same with my my party memberships that have changed and changed and changed at one point there was a, a me that was that really saw uh, each of these as uh, political vehicles that could be used by the left um, and i don't think that it is any less true because i've left them or because um these organizations have burnt people out um on the left i think we just need to be a lot better and uh, get on top of this culture of um, you know, like the school strike climate thing, that, that whole element of, um, of burning out of not cancelling. Uh, you know what I mean? We need to build better intergenerational structures um, of organising. And I hope that we can. I have faith that eventually we can. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming along uh, this evening, Joel. Really great to have you on the cast and giving uh, some insight into your experiences with a range of different groups. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure on this cold night in MIQ. Hey, if you've enjoyed listening to this, give it a share to um, your friends and family. I think one of the most important things to do is, we've said multiple times just on this cast, but we've said a lot previously as well, is look for opportunities to organize and engage, uh, have these conversations with people and let other people know that you're invested uh, in, in your politics um, and you do want to make a difference with things. Because unless we can reform some kind of civic environment here, it just makes it a lot harder for everyone to get things over the line. Catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full Your nation, you hate nationalism. 
You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays You hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays No